All right, grab your Bibles, open them up to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Well, Happy New Year's. Uh, Thank you. Um, Today marks the turning of the calendar. Uh, For many people, this is kind of the signal for a restart, uh, the beginning of something new. Uh, For us here at Communion Church today, it's going to mean going back and picking up where we left off. So we spent the month of December in Advent uh, looking at the incarnation and all uh, that Jesus' coming means for us. But if you were here with us before that, uh, we were working our way through Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. And so today we're going we're to go back to that. We're going to continue this challenge from Paul to this church that he planted and this church that he cares for deeply. Now, we're picking it up in the middle of a chapter, um, and this chapter, chapter 10, is all about Paul defending his ministry. Now, as he defends his ministry, he's doing more than just kind of showing his credentials, uh, right, right, presenting them with a resume. No, Paul is trying to protect the church um, from false teaching. And this is because after he planted the church, he, he left, and after he left, people came in, um, people who are not only encouraging the church to reject Paul, Um, but to reject the gospel in its entirety. And so as Paul defends his ministry, he is painting a picture for the church of what faithful ministry looks like. He's both giving them an example that they can follow, but also kind of showing them the character that they should look for in leaders and ministries that they commit themselves to. Now, before we jump in, it is worth noting uh, the change of tone that has taken place in chapter 10. Um, way back when we started 2 Corinthians, as I introed the book, um, I said that while we have 1 Corinthians and we have 2 Corinthians uh, in our Bible, there's most likely four letters that were written from Paul to the Corinthian church. There was a first letter, which we don't have, um, but we know it was written because it's referenced in 1 Corinthians. He says the previous letter. Um, and this letter is what led the church of Corinth to respond to Paul and say, what are you talking about? Um, And so they asked him a whole bunch of questions. His response to those questions is what we have in our Bible as 1 Corinthians. Now, after he wrote that and then he visited them, it did not go well. Um, There was still a lot of tension between Paul and the church. Um, And so after that difficult visit, he wrote a third letter, uh, which is often called the severe letter. The severe letter is mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, where it says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter... I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. So this letter that he wrote caused a response in the church. There was was reconciliation, and so he's now writing this letter, um, kind of celebrating all of that. Now I mention all of this because... Some scholars believe that we actually have the severe letter, that that letter that is referenced is actually 2 Corinthians um, chapters 10 through 13. Now, we can't know for sure if that's what happened, that they took these two letters and kind of jammed them together to make one, Uh, but what we can at least acknowledge as we read through this is that there has been a change of tone here. Paul seems to have a bit more earnestness in the way that he makes his plea in these last four chapters. Now, the reason for this could be 
simpler than simply it is the severe letter. It could be because uh, Paul was writing to the faithful at the beginning, and he's basically wanted to start by celebrating all the good things, and now he's moving into, but there are still some problems. Um, And so instead of talking to the people for whom he is celebrating, he is now talking to the rebellious directly with a greater focus on the issues that are tearing the church apart. Either way, whether this is the severe letter looking at issues that have been reconciled, or if this is Paul kind of shifting his focus, um, in the end, towards the end here of 2 Corinthians, we're going to see a much more aggressive version of Paul. Even sarcastic at times. But even with the tone change, his overall goal remains the same. To help God's people know the difference between what is true and what is false. And this is what we're going to continue in today. Paul is going to use himself as an example of what God-ordained kingdom work looks like. And he's going to contrast this with some of the other leaders in Corinth who are leading the people astray. Now this is helpful for us today specifically as we think about the types of priorities and character that we're going to invest our lives in this year. Let's make sure that we're caring about the things that God cares about. And not wasting our time on the distractions and arguments um, that really just distort God's good. So this is going to help us point us in the proper direction as we chart our path for the new year. With that, let's get into it. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 12. It says this. It says, Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. So Paul begins here by pointing to an issue that has been long-standing in the Corinthian church, um, that is ranking one another through comparison. Now he has addressed this before in in, in 1 Corinthians, um, where he points to sort of the arguments that they're having about which leader in the church is the best. I love how he puts it in chapter 3 where he says, For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? I love that phrase. Are you not just being people? This is what he's returning to here. There's this very human way of justifying our position by comparing our strengths to other people's weaknesses. And so in the case of Peter and Paul and Apollos, their followers would would all compare them based on their strengths. And so Peter's guys would point to the relationship that Peter had with Jesus, the fact that he was given the keys to the kingdom, and they'd say, come on, what could be more important than that? Peter wins. Apollos' guys would step up and go, whoa, 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 let's not forget about the Spirit. Right? Apollos could teach. He was the best speaker anyone had ever heard. Um, So they're going, this guy is gifted. He's got the Holy Spirit just pouring out of him. And if the Spirit is giving him such amazing gifts and talents, certainly, certainly this is the most important. Apollos wins. Those who favor Paul would counter, have you seen how many converts Paul has? Right? There are churches, there are entire cities that would not have heard the gospel had Paul not gone out and brought the gospel to them. This is a mission that Paul was given by Jesus Christ himself. Certainly. 
certainly Paul wins. Right? So round and round they would go with these arguments. But the issue here is not about the foolishness of this sort of argumentation. The issue is about just how subjective it is. They're all changing the goalpost of what really matters to make sure that they have the advantage. And here's the thing. We all do the same thing all the time. It's interesting to me that the church itself still uses these same measurements and categories to compare one another. Right? The Catholic and the Orthodox Church point to this idea of apostolic succession, that it went from Jesus to Peter down through the popes. Right? Those are Peter's guys. The Charismatics point to giftedness. Right? That person's got gifts. That person's got gifts. That must be the most important thing. Evangelicals tend to focus on numerical success. We tend to look at Paul and go, right? The big churches. Who's baptizing the most people? Who's getting the most people to come to Christ? Those are Paul's guys. But the truth is, this way of comparing and basically building ourselves up goes way beyond the church. Right? Maybe you're not putting your pastor on a platform. Um, I have no delusions that you're out there arguing that your pastor is the greatest. Um, Yeah. (laughs) But we do take this on personally. We take what we're good at, and we convince ourselves that this must be the most important thing. That way we can feel good about what we're excelling at. We can say, the thing that we're good at is the thing that actually matters. And this, Paul says, is a very human thing to do. And the beauty of it is when you compare yourself with other people in this way, you can actually keep changing what the important measurement is based on who you're comparing yourself to, right? So that you always win. So like I could use height as an advantage and most of the time I would win. But when all of a sudden I'm confronted with someone who's taller, I could come up with some new tactic to go, yeah, 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 but they don't do this. Say, they don't go to church on New Year's, so we all win, right? Of course, this way of interacting with people is fraught with problems, not only because it makes us view other people through their weaknesses, elevates us in pride, but it means that in every interaction that we're having then, um, not only are we doing this to other people, but most likely they're doing this to us. And it creates this tension and conflict that's based entirely in trying to feel okay about who we are. Because that's the reason why we do this. The reason why we do this is not because proving ourselves better than someone else actually gets us anything. This is sort of a defense mechanism against our own fears and insecurities. We feel like we are less than. Maybe, maybe we need to prove to ourselves that we have value. And so we create this weighted game where we can control the outcomes. We can always win because in the compare game, we get to choose what is compared. Now in 1 Corinthians, as Paul addresses this, his main concern with all this comparing is unity. Because the leaders mentioned are all people worthy of following. And so they shouldn't be pitted against one another. The church is being negatively affected by all of this one-upping. And so Paul calls for the church to recognize itself as a body, right? A body with all of these various parts playing their role. And so the way to be unified is to recognize your need for these other people. 
It is to recognize where they are strong and you are weak rather than the other way around. And then you can be thankful for them as well as thankful to God for putting them in your life. Paul summarizes it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And so in the end, you gain nothing by playing this fake comparison game. As a matter of fact, you're harmed by it in the long run. Through conflict and infighting, you hurt yourself through this act of trying to feel better about yourself. And so the alternative that Paul points to is to recognize ourselves as a single entity that suffers, that is honored, and that rejoices together. And in doing this, we can celebrate the strengths of others rather than being intimidated by them. We can acknowledge our weaknesses rather than trying to hide them. Right? Because I am not graded by how well I compare to everyone else. I'm not in com- competition with you. You're not in competition with me. We are working together towards a common end. Now, this is written to the church, right, specifically, because we are a people who have been united through Christ to accomplish his plan and bring him glory. And this unified purpose gives us the structure to be able to work against this very fleshly desire to put ourselves above others. Now, here in 2 Corinthians, Paul is now adding a second layer to this. He is saying that when we shift the goalposts in order to make much of ourselves, we actually distort the gospel. Because the gospel is based on a set standard, right? It is, it is based on God's standard. And God's standard reveals to us that we have all fallen short. And because of our sinful failures, we need a Savior. Jesus Christ, then, is the only answer to all of the problems of sin that we face. But as soon as we start self-justifying through comparison, Christianity becomes a means to elevate ourselves, to find our value actually in ourself. Jesus then becomes a tool in the process of building up our individualistic search for meaning. And in the end, then, we set ourselves against the gospel. We actually are preaching a different message. Now, along with this, The aspect of Christianity that we prioritize in order to justify ourselves becomes the lens by which we read the whole Bible. We end up distorting the Bible in order to make it fit into our own view. I'll give you an example of what this looks like. Say you excel in theology. right? If you excel in theology, it is easy to rest on the idea that what God cares about most is how well you know the ins and outs of doctrine. And if that's the case, then you're doing better than most of the other people because they haven't read the books that you have. They can't quote the things that you have. 
Now, what this does, though, in the long run, at least it can, this may lead you to the point where you believe that those who don't have a refined theology must not be saved. And I've had people say this to me, right? This person is wrong on this issue. They must not be a Christian. And I'm like, whoa. My response is always the same. Do you think that your knowledge of God is what saves you? Do you think you're saved by your theology? And if so, you better make sure it's perfect. No, the gospel message is that God saves us in spite of ourselves, not because we've achieved some level. I'll give you another example. You may believe that the measure of your faithfulness is in helping the poor. And you may feel great about how much more you do than everyone else. This might lead you to the point where you proclaim that Jesus cares more about the marginalized than he does others. Especially those religious people because he hates them. Again, people say these sorts of things to me all the time. But Jesus' point in hanging out with the outcasts and calling out the Pharisees was not to put the poor above, but to show that all of them were in need of a Savior and that that Savior was available to all of them. And so the gospel is not about Jesus loving one group more than another, but to show us that God does not conform to earthly ranking systems, so we probably shouldn't create a new one. But my point is this, it's easy for us to create new and false gospels out of the comparison game. And so as Paul here is addressing these false teachers who are using comparisons to cast doubt on him and the message that he taught, what he's actually doing is warning the Corinthian church to be very careful. This isn't just about whether or not you follow him or someone else. He has already shown that he doesn't care about that in 1 Corinthians. This is about whether or not they're being drawn into deeper relationship with Christ or they're actually being led away from him. And so playing this comparison game can both alienate us from others and it can also cause us to distort the mission itself. Because it's easy to believe that the priorities that I set are God's priorities. But we need to make sure we're going to God to set the priorities. And so that's what Paul does. He goes on from here to help show them where the priorities are, where they should find value. This is what he says, verse 13. He says, But we will not boast beyond limits, but but we'll boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us, to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond the limit in the labors of others. But our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged. So that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. So Paul is speaking here about the different tactics that these false leaders are using. Um, And he talks about boasting beyond limits, uh, taking credit for the work of others, and commending oneself. And in this, he's he's setting himself apart. He's saying, I don't use these tactics. This is not what I do. Um, And he goes on to show us why. On the issue of limits, Paul's talking about recognizing the part that you play in God's plan. 
is related to that body imagery we looked at earlier. Um, Recognizing the work of others, right, the part that everyone else plays in the body, helps us to show where we fit. And it also helps to show how limited our role actually is. Seeing God's great plan that involves every single person shrinks our importance, which is a good thing. See, one of the results of acknowledging our small part is that we can now see the part that other people play. This helps us not to get blinded by delusions of grandeur, which is one of the things that false teachers use to control those they lead. One of the things that you see over and over again in in cults and and other false leaders is, is these people elevate themselves in their ministry. They cause people to believe that their work is the only work of God. That God's work is now limited to this specific church and this specific leader. Now, people wouldn't dare leave an unhealthy church or an unhealthy leader because that's where God's work is. Where are they going to go? And often when people get out from underneath this sort of unhealthy leadership... They're surprised to find out that there were many other people doing the work of God all around them that they couldn't see. I remember talking to a friend who had been a pastor at a mega church that ended up imploding. Before your minds go anywhere, it was in a different state. Um, But he was amazed at that moment. He was amazed to find out that there were a dozen other churches within a mile radius of their church that were doing gospel-saturated work in the area. He didn't even know they were there. He drove past them on his way to work every single day and didn't even see it. Their church was so focused on expanding and becoming the work of God that they lost sight of how, God, how big God's plan is and how small they are in comparison. And so recognizing our limitations in life and in ministry allows us to acknowledge how vast and complex our God is. And while this makes us feel small and possibly even unimportant, it also keeps us from shrinking God down and putting him into our own little box. Because the bigger that we see God, and the more glorious he is, the more amazed that we will be that he loves us, that he's invited us to be a part of this thing at all. And this allows us to focus our efforts and to work hard on the small but important part that he has given us to do. I've always loved how Paul says this in in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. When we recognize our limited place in God's unlimited plan, it not only keeps us humble and makes us grateful, but it helps us to see every little part that we receive as a grace from God. Every good thing that we produce is God working through us. Which prevents us from the second thing that Paul mentions here, taking credit for the work of others. Most likely what, what was happening here is all of these leaders were looking at the Corinthian church and going, I did that. The next guy was like, I did that. And they're all basically saying that they're the reason why that church has grown. This is an attempt to prove their superiority and value. 
But as Paul has already made clear, if personal success is not the goal, then what matters is not who does the work, but that it gets done. He's already applied this to uh, the argument of Paul versus Apollos, saying, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God gives the growth. Right? The reason why it doesn't matter is because no matter who accomplishes the task, God is the one who's actually doing the work. To borrow their analogy, a farmer can plow, he can plant, he can water, but nothing is coming out of the ground unless the creator of the universe chooses to make it grow. Now this is big concept, big idea God that sees him at play in every part of his creation. And this goes well beyond any aspect of ministry. Every good thing that is accomplished in this life, in this world, is because God provides the skill and the energy and produces the end. Everything. And so there's nothing that we should look at and go, I did that. We should not take full credit for any aspect of what we are able to do. He said every good thing that we're able to do becomes an opportunity to worship the God who makes it happen. James 1 reminds us of this. It says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation of sh- or shadow due to change. Every good thing is of God. And so we don't need to go around taking credit for the work of others, because we already should not be finding ultimate value in our own work. Stealing someone else's does not benefit us if work is not the measure of our success. Instead, we should allow every good part of our life to lead us to giving glory to God. Which brings us to the third aspect that Paul points out here. Any boasting that we should do should be boasting in God. Right? He says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, the reason why that phrase is in quotation marks in your Bible is because he's referencing Jeremiah chapter 9. A statement from God to his people about what actually matters in this life. It says this, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord." And so God says flat out, riches, might, wisdom, these are not things to boast in. These are simply aspects of this temporary world that come and they go. And I'll say, I can confirm this. I have watched it happen. I have sat with people who lost everything. All their wealth, gone. I've watched people who become weakened by sickness, who are strong people. And all of a sudden, they needed help just to get up. I've sat with people who are respected members of society, who are all of a sudden discarded because their minds didn't work in the way that they had before. Now, the difference between those who are overcome by these losses and those who are able to take it in stride 
is in whether or not their ultimate value rests in these trans, transient realities. Because if your sense of who you are, if what you boast in is something that can be so easily lost, then you are going to fight for it every step of the way and you are going to be devastated when it goes. But when you boast in the Lord, your reason for living is no longer attached to you. It's no longer something that can be measured by human systems. It's no longer something that can be lost. Your purpose now is in the fact that the God of the universe is your God. That the one who holds all things together is your heavenly Father. That he has done the work to bring you back into relationship and he has chosen you to be part of his plan to restore his creation. Our boast, God says in Jeremiah, is that he understands and knows me. The Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. The fact that we know God, that we're connected to his love and his righteousness and his justice, allows us to see everything that happens in this life as the grand story of his glory and grace. And the fact that we're part of it at all. right? However big or small, the fact that we are part of his cosmic and eternal plan. That is our reason to boast. And we focus on this, it helps us to keep from distorting God's plan to try to align him with our accomplishments. We need to remember, we are people drawn into his plan. Which means that rather than polishing our trophies, we should lay our trophies down, all down at Jesus' feet. We sing that in Jesus Paid It All. It's like, what song is that? What this reminds us of is that it's his approval ultimately that matters. Which is how Paul ends. He says, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Which means it doesn't matter if you can convince yourself that you're great. It doesn't matter if you can convince everyone else in this room that you're great. What matters is whether or not you're God's. It is his commendation that we should be living for. Now this always reminds me of the parable of the talents, and we don't have the time to go through the whole parable. Lots of things there. But the part that always sticks with me from this parable is is not how the servants steward the money given them, It's the way the master responds to them at the end. And I'll be honest, most of the people reading this always focus on the guy who messes up, right? And that's kind of... But what amazes me is how he speaks to the first two guys. Right? These two guys who are given just a little bit to steward, and what do they do? They go and they do their best with what is given to them. They come back and they present, here's what I did, here's what I got. And the master greets them saying, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And I always think about that moment being the end of life. When you stand face to face with God, how amazingly satisfying to just say, well done. Yeah, yeah, you messed up a lot. Well done. Come on in. 
So instead of living your life in comparison to others, trying to prove that you're worthy, live for the audience of one. Live to one day see God face to face and have him say, well done, good and faithful servant. One of the reasons why we come here every week is so that we don't get lost in all these other measurement systems. Because again, it is a very human thing to do. We come here every week so that we remember God's standard and God's presence. And one of the things that we do every week when we come together is we take communion. This is God's assurance to us that our debt has been paid and that we are his because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so the reason why we can stop trying to one-up everyone else, the reason why we can be okay with our limits, the reason why we can look in the mirror and see all the faults and flaws and still be okay with it is because we know that the only commendation that matters has already been given. We are accepted because of Jesus Christ. And so come to the table today boasting in the Lord, thankful that you know him and that he knows you. And commit yourself to living out the small part of his great plan that he has created for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you so much that you care. We thank you so much that you have have overcome all of our sin and brokenness and all of the mess that we have created, that you have done the work to justify us. I pray that you would help us to recognize what that means for our lives, that we could live in that reality, that we could shed all of this anxiety and insecurities and fears that we carry around with us all the time because we are allowing ourselves, we are allowing ourselves to be judged by things that that have no bearing anymore. I pray that you would help us to find the freedom that that, that we have been given. God, thank you so much for doing the work. I pray that you bring it to completion. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I will uh, play quietly as we come forward. Just as a reminder, this is a family meal. Uh, if you are a baptized believer, then this is your turn to respond to Christ's goodness and sacrifice for you. So come forward and grab the bread and the juice. Return to your seats and we'll take all together.